0: You are listening to audio from Life Community Church, located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. We will now join Pastor Ryan McAllister as he brings us the message for today. Good morning, everyone. If you would be so kind as to turn to Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, we're going to be going through verses 13 to 34 today, 13 to 34. But for right now, I'm going to read for you verses 22 through 34. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, Uh, you can, there should be one in front of you in the pew, actually, or you can maybe download the Bible app on your phone, some way that you can read it. We also have it up on the screen, but we really want you to have God's word in front of you. So you can go ahead and use the Bible app to download your own uh, Bible on your phone, but we also have the words up on the screen uh, if you would like to use that. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. this is the word of the lord. Over the past couple of weeks we've been going through the gospel of Luke. And if you remember, Luke's gospel has two purposes: to give us truthful history, truthful history about who Jesus is. This truthful history gives us confidence about the gospel that we have heard. And if you have never heard what the gospel is, don't worry, you're going to hear it today a little bit more. But the purpose of Luke writing is to give us that truthful history and confidence in the gospel and also to show that Christ is a continuation of Israel's history. Right now, we're talking about a part of the Gospel of Luke from chapter 951, which begins by saying that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And if you know the story of Christ, you know that Jerusalem is where he will go to be killed. We are in this section, 951 through 1927. We'll be there for another two weeks, I believe, or another week or so. And there's this prominent theme that's happening in this section about what it means to be a disciple. Everything that we're going to be talking about today and for the next couple of weeks is all about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. It's really interesting that this is is usually called the travel section. This is the travel section because Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and so we must learn what it means to travel with Christ, to follow after him as he goes towards Jerusalem. Today we're going to be dealing with anxiety and possession, and we're going to be talking about this incident where Jesus is interrupted and asked about a specific question, and then he gives a parable, and then he gives a teaching for his disciples This first section verses 13 through 21 is about treasure it's a trap or an opportunity so let's go ahead and let's read uh, the first couple of verses these verses 13 through 21. someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me but he said to him man The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In the context of this story of the man who interrupts Christ, it says that someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus was teaching. He was teaching in the first section of chapter 12 about hypocrisy, persecution, courage, confessing Christ as Lord, trusting the Lord through it all. And he is speaking about a time where people will be brought before courts and synagogues and authorities, and he says, Don't be anxious about what to say. Don't worry about how you will defend yourself, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And a man stands up to ask a question, and you might think if you were in the crowd, maybe he needs some clarification. How, Lord, might the Holy Spirit work through ones such as us? How, Lord, do we know it's the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts How, Lord, might we understand this? No, instead he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I don't know if you've ever taught a group of kids before. But this feels very familiar to me when I was in my third grade class teaching my third graders about some history lesson. And then suddenly they'd go, I thought they were going to ask me, you know, I'm teaching about George Washington or something. And I'm thinking that they're going to ask a very poignant and, you know, I'm engaging them because I'm a great teacher, you know. And so they're really getting it and they're really involved. And I'm like, oh, here comes a great question about George Washington. And they're like, hey, can you tell me why my brother doesn't be nice to me? And you're like, where did that come from? This man speaks up and interrupts the vital teaching of Christ in order to get an answer for his greedy concern. Inheritance disputes are messy. I don't know if you've ever had the displeasure of dealing with inheritances in your family. It is, number one, you have the loss of a loved one that you have to deal with the emotion of, but then you have to figure out what to do with their inheritance. It's even harder when that individual doesn't leave a plan for what to do with their inheritance. Usually what happens is that everyone starts gathering around and dividing up the spoils. And people are angry and greedy and maneuver to try to get what they would want These concerns could be perceived as one of, I want justice to be done. This is how this man is portraying himself. Do justice for me. In fact, this was something that was quite typical in the first century. If you had a question about law, especially within the Jewish context, because in Israel, um, civil law and religious law were all the same law. They were all together. And so you came to a religious leader to get judgments sometimes about civil matters. But just like we saw last week and when we talked about the neighborly Samaritan, the compassionate Samaritan, this man wanted to use God's law as a tool to get his way. He wasn't really concerned about a just division of inheritance he said tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me command him you have religious authority it kind of reminds me you know i'm th- i guess i'm thinking about my time as a teacher a little bit when whenever we would go onto the playground it was inevitable at some point within that 30 minute period six Or seven kids would come up to me and say, so-and-so is doing this mean thing to me. Tell them to stop. And my answer was always, is there blood? Is someone on fire? Why are you asking me to do this? You need to settle this amongst yourselves. Because I knew that if you don't let kids settle things on the playground, you don't let them learn how to interact with each other and settle their matters, they're going to grow up to be people who never settle matters, always going to authorities to get every little matter settled. They will never be self-sufficient. But this also elicits this understanding, and I'm trying to teach them That they need to not go and abuse an authority to get their way. Usually what this means is that children or this man are not really concerned about justice. They may say that they want justice, but that's not usually what they mean. What they mean is, I want my way. And you are an authority who can leverage power in my favor. You see, justice is supposed to be blind, right? Not not looking at one side or the other. Justice is supposed to be impartial is what that means. There is no partiality. In fact, God's word talks about that. Not partial to the poor and not partial to the rich. Impartiality is important, but so many want to use God's justice to get what they want. Jesus then gives a warning against distractions from kingdom purpose. It's interesting how he responds. He he rejects the role of the arbiter. He says, who made me the arbiter over you? You would expect Jesus, gentle and kind, to be like, oh, son, I know how difficult this must be for you. That's how we would imagine. That's the Jesus of our imagination. But Jesus is set on Jerusalem. He is going that way, and he is trying to lead his disciples as they follow and teach them what they need to know for kingdom purpose. And he has no time. To deal with these little squabbles. Who made me an arbiter over you? That doesn't seem very kind of Jesus. Doesn't seem like he gets this guy very well, does it? He was set on Jerusalem. He didn't have time to deal with these family squabbles that distracted him from his mission and purpose. Jesus warns against these kinds of distractions from our purpose as well. He says to them, this is to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This implies that covetousness and greed are attacks upon our hearts and upon a person. We need to be on guard for them. And Jesus adds, no one's life consists in the abundance of possession. Jesus then goes on to give this really interesting parable about worldly wisdom and spiritual stupor. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. This man was already rich. This was a rich man already, and he was now getting even more. He was already wealthy, and now he is becoming more wealthy. There's no indication that he was being immoral, that he was swindling people or stealing. It says instead that the land he had produced even more. So much so that he couldn't contain it with his already full containers. It's interesting because it says that the land of the rich man produced plentifully. This is a way to say that God had provided him with this extra wealth because God is the one who causes all things to grow. But notice this man. You know, last week when we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, I said that we shouldn't try to divulge the thoughts of characters and parables because they're characters and parables, not real people. But this parable actually goes into the mind of this man. So we can dive into his thoughts because Jesus actually reveals them to us. And he says, "...what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops." In this little parable, I and my are said 11 times. He has a constant focus on himself, and he thinks that he is the one that has produced this great wealth. But notice as well, not only his self-focus, but his anxiety. What shall I do? what shall I do? He's like, oh no. I have a problem I need to figure out. Now granted, most of us would say, that's a good problem to figure out. You got more stuff coming in. You have more wealth accumulating. And yeah, sure, it's a good problem. But notice how anxiety slips in immediately. In verses 18 and 19, he comes up with a good plan, but it leads to false peace. He uses his worldly wisdom to manage his wealth. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample good laid up for you for years. Relax, eat, eat. Drink, be merry. It's really not a bad plan to protect his wealth. Put it in barns. Put it in extra storage facility. Hey, you know, your your barns are too small. Expand them. Sounds like a good plan. But his strategy reveals a lack of wisdom which will not prepare him for what is coming. You see, this false peace that he is giving to himself. I love how he talks to himself. Soul, you're good. Don't worry. Eat, drink, be merry. It's all good. you got this all figured out. Look at that amazing plan. So good. He begins to rely upon his wealth and his abundance for his future. He thinks his future is now secure. There's nothing left to worry about. What he doesn't realize is that wealth and abundance are completely transitory, they lack eternal consequence. This is one of the things that is revealed when we we consider uh, in, in philosophy. One of the questions that we discuss and is one of the most difficult questions as a Christian to deal with is the problem of pain and suffering. That is a very difficult problem to answer. But I contend that one that is as equally difficult to deal with is the problem of pleasure. One of the things that you find as you gain more and more is that things feel emptier and emptier. No amount of pleasure or good ever seems to satisfy us. Wealth and abundance always seem to fall short. And this is where the fool's devastation is revealed. In verse 20, God explicitly comes into the scene. Remember, he was already implied at the beginning for bringing the wealth to the man. And then the man completely forgot God through the rest of the parable until this moment. And God said to him. Usually when you see um, here, it says, but God said to him. Usually when you see but God in scripture, that's usually like a great thing. Like you get excited. That's like a preacher's thing. It says, but God, usually we refer to being rich in mercy. But this is like the worst but God that you could ever have in the scripture. But God said to him, fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? One thing we have to understand about this parable is that Jesus is not teaching that this man's possessions are what make him a fool. So many times we get wrapped up in thinking that if someone has possessions, they are a fool. Or they are wrong, or they are immoral. That is not what is being implied here. Possessions don't make him foolish. His disregard of eternity does. Wealth is not the sin being addressed. It is not a sin to have wealth. The sin is prioritizing the the accumulation of temporal possession. The hoarding of these things for himself. Since the Lord is the originator of both wealth and life, both are owed to him. In chapter 11... Jesus had been rebuking the Pharisees. Chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. I'm not going to, I don't have it up on the screen and I'm not going to read it to you, but just so you know where it is. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because the Pharisees were astonished as he was eating with them that he didn't wash his hands first. And the Lord said, You guys cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who make the outside make the inside also? Jesus was rebuking them for being righteous on the outside, but like graves on the inside. That same kind of foolishness which is a disregard of the God who made both the outside and the inside is the same kind of foolishness that disregards the God who provides wealth and life. Jesus then adds, verse 21, so is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We have to avoid the trap by knowing the real problem. Our real problem is not our lack of things, but our lack of love for God and neighbor. We must lay up treasure in our heavenly bank account, not only our earthly one. This is where we get to the teaching of Christ to his disciples. Remember this parable is said to the crowd. And then Jesus turns to his disciples to give them even more insight into this. He tells them that they need to seek the kingdom in verses 22 through 34. First he talks about the anxieties of life. But there's more to life. Let's read a little bit of this. 22 through 34. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do this, to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and thrown into the oven... Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says this to his disciples, that there is more to life. The reality is that those who don't follow Christ can't benefit from this teaching. They may be able to learn something, but there is no benefit to those of you who do not follow Christ in this teaching. Because first you must repent and believe and follow him. This teaching is for those who follow after Christ. That doesn't mean that you can't learn some truth because that all of this is very true. And it is the reality. But in order to actually benefit from this teaching, you must first be his disciple. One of the things I think is very interesting about this teaching of Christ is that he connects greed and worry. They are connected to each other. Greed Fears it can never get enough. It's always wanting more. Always accumulating. Always looking. Always grabbing. Always pulling. Because it fears that it won't have enough. Worry, on the other hand, fears it will never have enough. The anxiety that I'm not going to be able to get over here because I don't have enough things. And it worries and it contemplates and it tries to scheme and it tries to think of new ways to have enough. Materialism, the desire for things and a priority on stuff, leaves us wanting George Monabot in The Guardian was writing an article about some psychological studies that had been done showing the problem with materialism. And he said this As people become more materialistic, their well being, good relationships, autonomy, sense of purpose, and rest diminishes. As they become less materialistic, it rises. When you are materialistic, your well-being will diminish. When you care about things more than anything, when you care about accumulating for yourself, you are not going to be well. Our culture suffers greatly from a materialistic mindset. Always wanting and needing more heard the other day that, um, I think it's, it's uh, the Instapot, they went bankrupt uh, because they made such a great product that like nobody ever needed an Instapot again. Like they would buy an Instapot, and that's the only Instapot they'd ever need for the rest of their life. And so they were good. And then Instapot was like, well, I guess we have no more money. Uh, we've made all the Instapots we possibly can. And you know, sometimes we think about it, we go, they don't make things like they used to, because it seems like things always break, don't they? Things just always seem to be falling apart, we need to replace things. And it feeds into this materialistic mindset that we have, that we, oh, you know, well, you know, it's, it's not the newest thing anymore, it's kind of wearing down, I need to get that next great technology we really suffer in our culture from materialistic mindset. But the kingdom aim keeps us content. There's more to life than things. And so what we have to do is we have to keep our eyes on the kingdom. That's how we can stay content. First Timothy chapter six, verses six through seven. Godliness With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul is assuring us that when we follow after the things of God, we can find true contentment in this world. Jesus uses a very interesting testimony or examples, things to consider. He uses ravens and lilies in verses 24 through 28. Ravens are an interesting bird because they bring up uh, in, the, in the Hebrew mind the image of Elijah being provided for by the ravens. But ravens are also an interesting animal because they are an unclean animal. And so whether you are thinking of Elijah or you're thinking of their uncleanliness, consider the ravens. They don't prepare, yet God cares for them. In the middle between the ravens and the lilies, Jesus brings up a great point. Which one of you can add a single moment to their life by worry? In fact, we know that the more you worry, the less life you have. It actually shortens your life. Worry actually reduces our lifespans. So why do we do it? Then he brings up the lilies, how God's care for these transient plants. He talks about these plants that the grass that grows up and then is thrown in the oven. And in ancient Israel, wood was not as plenteous as it is here in Northern America, so grass was a primary fuel source. And so they would gather up grass and throw it into the oven. It was a transient thing, it was here one day and gone the next. But God cares for these transient plants who can't work or produce. This brings up the antidote to anxiety. We need a vertical goal. Verse 29 says, Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world. Seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Rather than looking and seeking horizontally in every direction for the things that we need, because here is a reality about this section this is not a teaching of asceticism that you are to deny yourself food and possession. That is not what is being taught. What is being taught is that you don't seek for them the way that the world seeks for them. You don't attain them the way the world attains them. They are looking left and right, forwards and backwards, every which way on a horizontal playing field. But you, follower of Christ, look up. You look towards your Father. You fix your gaze on the kingdom of God. It's very reminiscent in my mind and makes me think of the Apostle Peter when he is walking upon the water. Christ is walking on the water and Peter decides... I'm going to do that. I'm going to get on the water as well. And he starts going towards Christ, walking on the water. But then he gets distracted by the storm around him and he begins to see, sink. He took his eyes off of Christ and he began to look at everything around him. And the anxiety built and the worry drug him down until Christ reached out and grabbed him up. Oh, you of little faith. I also thought about this. I've been trying to work out more and do do things to keep my body healthy. And one of my least favorite exercises is called Bulgarian split squats. Now number one, sounds awful, doesn't it? It's worse than the name. You put your leg behind you and then you have two weights on the other side, on a bench, and then you squat down. I'm not going to demonstrate it for you because it makes me look silly. But I'm telling you what, it's one of the greatest exercises you can do for your legs. It's amazing, but it's awful. It stinks. I don't like them. Every single time I do them, I complain. And I have to repent. But something I learned while doing them is if I keep my eyes down or if I look to the right, because usually there's a mirror so you can see whether you have good form or not. If I look to the right or if I look to the left... If I even look just straight, my balance is all jacked up every time I do that. I can't seem to do it correctly, and I use all these auxiliary muscles, and I'm not doing what I should be doing in the exercise. What I learned is I have to look up. And as soon as I look up, suddenly my balance returns. And I'm able to do the exercise properly. We must keep our gaze upon his kingdom. But I also want to point this out. At the end, it says, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. I want to read to you from 1 Timothy 6.5. This is, again, out of 1 Timothy 6. It's a great section about greed and contentment and false teachers specifically. And Paul is teaching Timothy about what false teachers are like. And one of the qualities of a false teacher is that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So sometimes people read this and they go, Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You want a car? Well, just support the kingdom of God and you'll get that car. You want the new house? Well, you know, just be nice to the old lady crossing the street and God will bless you for it. Suddenly, your aims become not really the kingdom, but the possessions. We have to understand that this is not a formula for acquiring wealth on earth. In fact, the desire for worldly gain causes friction in our lives and in our spirits. It prevents the gears of faithfulness from moving. It's like when you have a gear that gets a little bit of sand in it and suddenly you're starting to scratch everywhere and really mess up those gears. What we need to do is we need to apply the oil of God's grace to our gears of faithfulness. By keeping our minds and our aims on the things of God. That means we need a change of heart. Our hearts need to be different. Verses 32 through 34 Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions. And give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we trust in the Lord, we have to remember that we are his flock. We are no group of sheep without a shepherd. Not knowing which way to go, but we are provided for, led, and cared for by the good shepherd. So we have nothing to fear. Proverbs 4.23 reveals something very important. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. What we decide to value reveals where our heart really is. You know, our hearts, this is the internal person, who we are when no one is looking. Who we are on the inside. Not the outward dressing, but our real thoughts and attitudes. And that inner person is going to direct where we go. This is why the proverb teaches us to guard that inner person. This is why Jesus says, guard against covetousness. Be on guard because it's going after your heart, which will direct where you go. And it's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we have our treasure in heaven with the Lord at his feet, That will direct our lives. I have to finish up very quickly. Um, I've gone too long already. I want to give you some kingdom antidotes to worldly anxieties. Kingdom antidotes to worldly anxieties. First, kingdom priorities replace worldly distractions. The only way to be useful in the kingdom of God is to have kingdom priority. You know, there's an old phrase that says that someone can be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And it is a really good counterbalance to those who are extreme in asceticism. And they say, well, you know, we need to focus on only the things above, and the things that are here below don't matter. That is not what God is saying through this teaching. People matter. Whether they are fed and clothed matters. That's because God cares for people and provides for them. So it must matter. Jesus doesn't say deny yourself food and clothing. He says, trust God, seek his kingdom, and all that you need will be given to you. This past Friday I talked with the kids about Nehemiah one of my favorite people in the Bible and this incident this incident where he is um, building the walls of Jerusalem he's gotten the Jerusalem walls rebuilt Uh, he just needs the gates to be completed and then his enemies send him a letter and they're like hey we see that you got the walls done that's cool why don't you come down and talk with us in this valley don't pay attention to its name it's called oh no but that's okay That's fine. Oh no is just the valley name. It doesn't imply anything like we're going to try to hurt you or anything like that. And Nehemiah has one of the most amazing responses. He says, Why should the work that I'm doing stop for me to go down to you? Nehemiah knew his priorities, he kept them straight, and he didn't get distracted by anyone. Don't let the enemy drag you down into the valley of Ono. Secondly, generosity combats worldly greed. When we trust God with all our needs, it allows us an opportunity for God to provide for others through us. In turn, taking advantage of this opportunity helps us to put our flesh to death. Colossians 3. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Pay attention to this, which is idolatry. It is serving another God. Lastly, prayer and thanksgiving repel worldly angst and discord. Philippians 4, 6-7, and we will be finished. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What provides protection from anxiety and worry? Christ's peace. How do we enlist this protection of our heart? Prayer. Prayer and thanksgiving. I pray for you that you would trust the Lord in all things. That you would not lay your priorities in such a way to disregard God's kingdom but instead seek his kingdom first. Follow after Christ and may he guard your heart from all anxiety and worry about the things of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, we know that, that all of this is of grace. This is grace to us, that we, we hear this teaching and that we can follow after you. Lord, we know that, that our hearts They're desperately wicked. They're sick. They're messed up sometimes, God. Especially when we don't know you. In fact, when we don't know you and we don't trust you, we we are like dead people walking around. But you are rich in mercy. You are rich in kindness. And if we trust you, if we repent of our our evil ways, if we repent of the sin in our lives that so easily entangles us and drags us down, if we trust you to guard our hearts, you will. You will renew us. You will make us alive in Christ. So Lord, today for those who are here who come with much worry and anxiety about the things happening in their life, about their lack, or about their desire for more, may we lay them at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, we trust you. We trust you to take care of us. We trust you to provide for us. We trust you to guard us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you, and God bless.